You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to be looking at eight verses in this psalm once again. Well, today, as I've already mentioned, is our last Sunday here at King Bible Church. Next Sunday morning, by this time, we will be at home napping after our long morning together. And uh, earlier this morning, as I was setting out the snacks for our kids at about 10.30, I was just like, oh, we'd already be at church worshiping God, and I was so excited for that. I hope that you're as excited as I am. The question for a preacher on these kinds of occasions is, what, what do I do to prepare us best for a moment like this? As we prepare to close one chapter in the history of our church and begin a new one, how does the Lord want to address us? How would he prepare us for such a new challenge? I spent a lot of time thinking about this and praying about this over the week, and I didn't settle on an answer until a conversation on Wednesday morning with Timon. Uh, I asked him what he thought I should preach on, and his reply was simple. Well, you've already done growing in God's word part one, so there's got to be growing in God's word part two. Timon, you are right. There has to be a part two. The circle needs to be closed. And this really is the only opportunity for us to finish this kind of mini two-part series in Psalm 119, because next Sunday and the uh, Sundays in the near future will be focused on uh, a new series on gospel foundations, who we are as a church, what we believe, what our priorities are, what our values are, why we do church the way that we do. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm 119 once again, looking at how this psalm helps us to grow in God's word. Now, when you think about it, we've already had a little bit of time earlier in this service to do this. There is nothing that is more appropriate for us to do on such an occasion than to be reminded of the centrality of God's word. That's true of our personal lives, but it's also true of our corporate lives together as a church. When the Lord prepared Israel for its migration to the promised land, after 40 years of wandering in the desert, he reminded them again and again to not neglect his word, to not forsake his commandments, but to learn them, to remember them, and to live by them. Just to give you a small sampling, Deuteronomy 4 verse 1 And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules, that is, God's word, that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Later on in verse six, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. I'm struck by that one because... Without the word, we're, not, we're really not an exceptional community. We're just a random collection of human beings that really have very little that tie us together across ethnicities and cultures and demographic and, and generations. What ties us together is the word of God. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. That is a sobering warning. 
it reminds us that if we forget God's word, we are forgetting God himself. If we forget to make God's word the center of our lives together as a church, we have actually abandoned the Lord himself. We must be hearers of the word and we must be doers of the word. We must remember the word and we must keep the word. We must study the word and we must submit to the word. It doesn't matter if our context is changing. A changing context must not lead to a changing commitment to the scriptures. The reality, however, is if we are honest with ourselves and if we are sobered by the deceitful realities of the sin that dwells in our hearts, the reality is that we will be tempted to do so. We will be tempted to think that we do not need God's word anymore because we have arrived. We're something special now. We have a building. Now that idea may sound ridiculous, but let's not forget that stronger churches than ours have crumbled under the weight of unbiblical expectations. You, know, you need to grow to a certain size. In order to do that, you gotta do this. You gotta implement these kinds of programs. You gotta use this kind of language. Or you need to appropriate the culture's agenda and language in order to be relevant, in order to uh, attract greater followings. You need to expand your platform and influence, so you need to start dressing this way or speaking this way. But the one thing we truly need is to fully commit ourselves, heart, soul, and mind, to the Holy Scriptures. Because if we listen, we will live. If we are careful to do what it says, then God will be glorified in our church. He will be present with us and he will be pleased to use us. We may not become a mega church. We may not receive the world's approval, but we will receive God's approval. And that is the only approval that matters. And so as we turn to Psalm 119, we look to it to learn how to grow in God's word. That's how it's meant to work. Bible reading begets more Bible reading. The more you read, the more you want to read. Time in the word gives you a greater hunger for the word. We're not meant to find the resources to open up the Bible and to study and to read it in ourselves or in any external inspiration. We're meant to find motivation, inspiration in the word itself. And so that is what we pray the Lord would do in our hearts this afternoon. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. Verses 65 to 72. This is the word of the Lord. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
title of this sermon is Growing in God's Word, part two. My aim today is to show you that faithful Bible reading comes from faith-filled endurance of affliction. Faithful Bible reading comes from faith-filled endurance of affliction. We're going to break up our text today into two points. First, the role of faith, the role of faith, and second, the role of affliction, the role of affliction. First, the role of faith. Now, recall that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses, but each of those uh, uh, verses is broken up into 22 sections, 22 sections of eight verses each. And each of those sets of eight verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's really a beautifully structured, poetic psalm um, that if we knew Hebrew better than we do, we'd be able to appreciate not only its content, but its aesthetic beauty as well. Our our text today is structured around the ninth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is teth, teth. Now, each of the verses from 65 to 72 begin with this letter, teth. But in addition, five of the verses actually begin with the same word, Tob, T-O-B, Tob, which means good. It means good. You don't see it in the English translation, but if we were to kind of look at the Hebrew and give it a literal translation into English, it would say something like this. Verse 65, good have you done to your servant. Good judgment may you teach me, verse 66. Uh, Verse 68, good are you who do good, verse 71. Good for me that I was afflicted, verse 72. Good to me is the law of your mouth. God is good and he does good. That's, that's what it's summarizing. Uh, verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. God is good and he does good. His word is good and his works are good. Everything he does to his servants is good. Because God is good and he does good. But the question is, as we study this psalm and we consider the context, the question is, how could the psalmist say that? How could he write in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant when he was actually surrounded by enemies? Don't forget that princes were plotting against him, verse 23. The cords of the wicked ensnared him, verse 61. And in our text here, he admits, the insolent smear me with lies. These people who are surrounding him to persecute him, to speak ill of him, to to throw his name into the mud. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. They feel no sympathy for him, only hatred. They attack him, slander him, betray him, lie to him, hurt him. And yet he says, you have dealt well with your servant. God is good and God does good. Well, how can he say that? Well, the answer is he says it through faith. The statement in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, is a statement of faith. The psalmist is saying, I believe that you are good, and I believe that everything you do in my life is good, not because I always see it, but because I believe it. Now, where do you get a faith like that? A faith that transcends your circumstances. A faith that survives your suffering a faith that remains unshaken even when your whole world seems to be flipped upside down. Verse 65 says it comes from God's word. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. The psalmist knows that God is good and that God does good because God has done what he said he would do in his word. 
you have dealt well according to your word. Now we tend to gauge God's goodness on whether he has done what we want him to do. Don't we? Don't you do that? Did he give me what I want? Did he fulfill all of my plans? Well, if not, then we start doubting God's goodness. The psalmist doesn't do that. He gauges God's goodness on whether he has done what he has said he will do according to his word. You know, my, my sons are all really into cars. You know, I live in the world of Hondas and Toyotas. They live in the world of Bugattis and Konegsegs. You probably don't even know what those are. Konegseg, a Swedish brand, and Bugatti, I think it's French, and Lamborghinis and Ferraris. They, they, they love studying about supercars, how fast they accelerate from zero to 60, what their top speed is. Uh, they got all these little hot wheel cars that they, they, they know all the names, that they, they, they love studying about them. Well, if my sons were to come up to me and say, Daddy, I don't trust you anymore. You're not good to me. And I say, well, why not? Well, because you didn't buy me a Lamborghini. Well, I would say, well, that's not fair, my son, because I never promised that I'd give you a Lamborghini. And if I promised to give you a Lamborghini, I mean, I must have done that in my sleep because I can't afford it. Now, we know how unfair it is to be held to promises we never made. And yet, that's what we do with God, isn't it? We say, I'll only believe that you're good if you do what I say. But he wants us to believe that he's good because he does what he says. God isn't our genie in the lamp. He doesn't exist to fulfill our wishes. He exists to fulfill his own. But the wonderful thing about that is that his wish is to bless us. Maybe not with a Lamborghini, but with 10,000 blessings that go deeper into our hearts than any material possession could ever do. God wants to work in our lives in such a way that we can say, along with the psalmist, you have done well with your servant according to your word. It may not be how we think God should bring about goodness and happiness in our lives. And that's why it takes faith. It takes faith to say, Lord, I believe that what you've said you'll do is the best thing you could do in my life and we see the psalmist's faith on display again in verse 66. Look at this closely. He says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. What he's doing is he's praying that God would teach him good judgment, teach him knowledge, because or for he already believes in God's commandments. In other words, it's, it's faith that leads to knowledge. We tend to live as if knowledge leads to faith. You know, we've been so influenced by the modern ideas of science and rationality in the modern era and the postmodern era that we feel that we need to gather all the facts, understand all the details, and resolve all our questions before we commit ourselves to a belief. We live as if verse 66 says, teach me knowledge, and then I will believe in your commandments. But that's not what it says says, teach me, for I believe in your commandments. It's not knowledge, then faith. It's faith, then knowledge. Now, that's not to say that faith is ignorant or blind. It's not. There are good reasons to believe, and we do need some knowledge 
to put our faith in the God of the scriptures, but true biblical faith doesn't wait until it has all the answers. At some point, it simply surrenders to the Lord and says, you know best. Your word is truth, and I will build my life on your word. And it's at that point where we put our trust in God that we start receiving true, lasting, abiding knowledge. You start to gain true knowledge about God, true knowledge about yourself, and true knowledge about God's will for your life. The 11th century medieval Christian scholar Anselm of Canterbury put it this way more than 900 years ago. For I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. That's a mouthful, but there are profound truths in that statement. But no one put it better than the Bible writer Solomon himself more than 3,000 years ago when he wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom does not lead us to the fear of the Lord, though it does that if it comes out of the fear of the Lord initially. We need the fear of the Lord to grow in true knowledge. Now, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, you're agnostic, you're not yet a Christian, this might sound strange to you. It might sound intellectually dishonest. You know, faith comes before knowledge. How could that be? But if you think about it, all of us live by faith in something or someone before we have all the answers. If you're an atheist, you don't have an explanation for the Big Bang, and yet you believe it and you live according to a worldview that is built on that foundation. If you're committed to a scientific worldview that says all, the only thing that exists is the physical, observable, testable world, but you're pressed on that, well, why is that the case? You can't really give an answer other than, well, I just believe that. Science, by definition, cannot test or discern or get into the world of the unseen, into the spiritual. It is a step of faith to say that the only reality that exists is physical and there is no spiritual reality. All of us take leaps of faith. The only difference between non-Christians' faith and Christian faith is that their faith is in principles. Our faith is in a person. It's in the almighty God, in who he is and what he has done as he is revealed in his holy word. You know, human rationality, listen, human rationality alone will never lead us to the knowledge of God. Because if it did, if God had created a world like that, if he had allowed for that to happen, then our boasting would be in human reason and not in God. We'd be saying, wow, look at the powers of my rationality, what kinds of conclusions they have led me to make. We'd be boasting about our rationality rather than boasting in the one who created our rationality. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Christian life is a life of the mind. We do study, we do think, we think hard. We use the full 
faculty of our minds to pursue the knowledge of God, to seek him, to seek his will. But ultimately, the life of the mind is insufficient for us to come to a true knowledge of God. We need to live by faith, and that is really no different than everyone else. We're just not ashamed to admit it. God has made it so that the Christian life can only be lived by faith. The Christian life is not a life of certainty. If you are looking for a faith that answers all your questions and that leaves you with zero doubts about reality and about your place in that reality, then you're looking in the wrong place. We need faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. It's not a, it's not a life of knowing exactly how everything works. It's not a life of knowing exactly what's going to happen in your life. It's a life of surrendering to the one who does. Christians walk by faith, not by sight. And the only way that we can walk by faith is by feeding our faith with God's word. That's what the verse means in Deuteronomy chapter eight that Jesus quotes in the wilderness. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's talking about your faith your trust in God. Well, how do we do that? How do we feed on God's word? Well, we feed on the word by reading it, and we feed on the word by hearing it. We read it and we hear it, but ultimately we feed on the word by seeing Jesus within it, in our private reading and in our corporate settings. We need to see Jesus, because Jesus is the one who gives us faith through his word as the word reveals him to us. And that's why Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We hear the word when it enters our ears through preaching, and we hear the word when it enters our eyes through reading. And the more we hear the word, the more we will see Christ because the word of God is ultimately the word of Christ. Every single story, every single book in the Bible points to Jesus Christ, the one who was fully God and fully man, who came into the world to save sinners. And when we see Christ, we come to rest in the truth that God is good and God does good because in Christ we see that God kept the greatest promise of all, the promise to forgive us of our sins through the death of his perfect son, Christ died on the cross, not for the righteous or for the good, but for sinners, so that all who trust him will be brought into a personal relationship with God and receive his love forever. And that is why we are able to say that God is good and does good. That is why the testimony of a true believer can be, verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord according to your word. And this is why we need the word. We need to see Jesus. We need to constantly be be reminded that God's goodness isn't rooted in our subjective experience, but in the objective work of Christ on the cross. And so faith, it leads us to the word. The word leads us to Christ, and Christ leads us to faith. That is the circle of the spiritual life for the Christian. Faith leads us to the word, the word leads us to Christ, and Christ leads us to faith. 
Belief leads to understanding. And then that understanding leads us to belief as we behold the goodness and greatness of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I am so grateful. You know, this, this has given me opportunity to, to reflect on God's faithfulness to, to me and to my family and to our church over the years. I'm so grateful that the Lord has given us a church full of people who are full of faith, people who love Jesus, people who would give their lives for Jesus. You have been my mentors over the years. You have shown me what it means to deny myself, to take up my cross, and to follow Jesus. You have shown me what it means to love Jesus more than the world, more than my own family, more than myself. You have shown me what it means to trust God and not man. And you have shown me that through your commitment to the scriptures. You trust the wisdom of the word above and beyond the wisdom of the world. How else could we faithfully practice church discipline? How else could we hold to a biblical view of gender and sexuality in a world that is become hostile to it? How else could we continue to believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him? Well, it's because of your faith. It's because of your unwavering commitment to the scriptures. You have trusted God. You have turned to his word. You have submitted to the authority of his truth, even when the world would mock you for it. My friends, we are who we are because of our faith in God's word. And that means that we will only remain who we are to the extent that we hold on to God's word. The only way to be faithful is to be faith-filled. The only way to be faithful is to be faith-filled. And the way for us to measure our faith will always be by our commitment to the Holy Scriptures. This is what we need as we prepare to move to Bradford. We need to be reminded to go with faith. Faith in God and faith in God's word. Faith is more important than strategies and programs and projects. Faith is more important than the building itself. Faith in God, not man, is what has carried us this far and will continue to carry us in the years to come. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. We need faith in order to know God and to please him. But sometimes, sometimes our faith wavers. It's just not there. We don't feel very faith-filled. Our commitment to God becomes compromised. And it's in times like that that we actually need a different tutor, a harder instructor, which leads to our second point, the role of affliction. Up until now, the author of Psalm 119 sounds like he's the ideal believer. You know, he, he loves God's word. He trusts God in the midst of affliction. He's not bothered by the persecution. But here in verse 67, it turns out that this wasn't always the case. He writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I went astray. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that he deliberately chose to live in rebellion against God. He was walking on the paths of the Lord and forsook them. 
The Bible says that everyone who lives apart from Christ has gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. Remember that in Isaiah? It doesn't matter if you grew up in a different religious tradition or no tradition at all. All of us have hearts that have been bent by sin, bent inwards rather than upwards. We want to do our will rather than God's will. We desire our kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And therefore, all of us need God's grace to return to him. But here in verse 67, when we consider the psalmist and his life and his context, we're actually talking about a more specific kind of straying. This man, this ancient author of scripture, he grew up in the Jewish religious tradition. He knew God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He knew that God had redeemed his people out of Egypt. He knew that the, what the law of Moses required, and yet he says in verse 67, I went astray. I chose the world rather than the word. And we can imagine all the things God did to win him back. We see God's pattern of relating to his sinful, rebellious people all throughout scripture. He, he sends messengers to warn them and to call them back. He brings them back to his word so that they would be convicted by uh, the extent to which they have failed to meet his moral standards. And we can imagine God doing the same for him. We can imagine his friends urging him to repent. We can imagine him going to the Passover feast and the various annual feasts where all of Israel would gather together to sit under the reading of the law and to worship God together and yet him choosing deliberately to continue to go astray until finally the Lord took out his rod of affliction and disciplined him. Now the Hebrew word for afflicted means to be bowed down. To be bowed down and humbled. To no longer walk upright in the pride of your arrogance and self-sufficiency, but to be humbled by your weakness God brought this man to his knees. We don't know what he used, but we do know it caused pain. It was pain that brought him back to the Lord. The Lord himself, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, brought him to his knees through painful affliction. But this affliction wasn't an expression of God's wrath. It was an expression of God's mercy. It wasn't meant to condemn him. It was meant to save him because only this affliction could bring this straying man back to the paths of the Lord. And that's what it did. Verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. This affliction that led this man to return to the Lord also led him to return to the word His pain, you could say, radically transformed his relationship to the word of God. The one who once neglected the word now keeps the word, all because of the Lord's loving affliction. Now what's stunning about this? Well, that's already stunning, but what's particularly stunning about this is that there is no sign in our text or in the psalm that he is writing this at a time when the affliction has been lifted. In fact, there is abundant evidence to show that he is still in the midst of the affliction as he cries out to the Lord for deliverance, as he mourns about the presence of enemies who persecute him, who lie to him. The affliction is still there. 
And yet he can say in verse 71, it is good for me, it is good for me that I was afflicted. He's saying, it's it's good that, that the Lord has brought me this pain. It's good that I am still living through and in my weakness. It is good that the Lord has brought me to my knees in absolute dependence. Why? Because it led him to God's word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, verse 71 says, that I might learn your statutes. That is how precious the word of God is to God's people. All the pain, all the affliction, all the suffering is worth it because of this singular reward of the word. Returning to the word made it possible for him to say, God is good, and God does good, even when he causes me pain, because it's the pain that brought me back to his word. How sweet the word must be to be worth all this pain. And yet all of us who have read the word, who have tasted the word, know what he's talking about, don't we? We know what he means in verse 70 when he says, I delight in your law. We know what he means in verse 72 when he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. We know what it means to look at the Bible and say, here we have a priceless treasure that is worth more than all the treasures of the world. So if it takes pain, if it takes affliction for us to return to the word, if it takes being bowed down and humbled to have more of the word, Then we say, it is good for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And this is why the Bible teaches that Christians can rejoice in their suffering. Not because we delight in suffering, but because we delight in what the suffering produces. It produces endurance, it produces hope, but most of all, it produces joy. Joy in the person of God, joy in the works of God, and joy in the word of God. And that is the testimony that many of you have. As I have watched your lives, as I have seen you persevere through affliction, I have seen many of you bowed down. I have seen many of you brought to your knees in complete dependence on God. And perhaps you're there right now. Perhaps you're still in the midst of the affliction. But the effect of that affliction has been a sweeter and deeper dependence on the word of God. And it's there that you found joy that you would have never had apart from the affliction in your life. Someone in my tag last Wednesday put it well. She talked about growing up knowing all these Bible verses, but none of them really spoke to her. None of them really comforted her. None of them really served as the lifeline that they were intended to be until she had suffered. Those verses that used to zip through her mind now, verses that you memorize as a child, or perhaps prepare for a Bible quizzing contest, they zip through your mind, but now, in the midst of suffering, they pass in your mind as if in slow motion. How does that happen? Well, it's not the verses that changed. It's the person who changed. It's the person. God takes the affliction And he uses it as the tools in his potter's hand to shape you into the proper receptacle for his word so that we would not respond to the word with cold hearts or 
indifferent eyes, but with the fires of indescribable joy. Friends, these are the truths that we need to remind ourselves of and remind each other of as we prepare to move. We must remember that God is sovereign over suffering. We must remember that God has a purpose for our pain. We must remember that joy comes through sorrow. Because as much as we are looking forward to the new opportunities, we need to be aware of the new challenges, the new pain that awaits us. D.A. Carson said, all you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer. That's true for individuals and it's true for churches. We will suffer. I don't know what that suffering will look like, what form it will take. It could be loved ones falling away from the faith. It could be unfair criticism. It could be persecution from the government. I don't know what it will be, but I do know that it's coming. Suffering is coming. And when it does come, the question for us will be, how will we respond? Will we, will we respond with complaining and grumbling? Will we respond with a diminished confidence in God's word? Or will we continue to be able to say, God is good and God does good? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Our affliction is never spiritually neutral. It's always accomplishing something in our lives. It's either pushing us away from the word or pulling us toward the word. Left to ourselves, it would always push us away because of our sin. But if God is with us, if God would give us grace, and he will give us grace, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us, then our afflictions will lead to a greater love for the word and a greater commitment to the word. And so as we prepare to move, let's not forget that it's the word that has made us who we are. I'm not just talking about learning the word, I'm talking about living the word. Not just hearing the word, but doing the word. We've been, thought, we've been talking a lot these days about not only the importance of gospel doctrine, but the importance of gospel culture. And both of them, doctrine and culture, centered on the person of Christ, come from the word. It's not as if the word gives us doctrine and we give ourselves our culture. Both come from the word. If we want a healthy gospel culture, we need a healthy commitment to the word. And if we truly live as doers of the word, that will change how we spend our time. It will change what we do in our times of leisure. Not wasting it as we stare at the various glowing rectangles in our lives, but investing it purposefully into the eternal purposes of God. It will change how we treat one another, not with backbiting, gossip, and slander, but with the loving pursuits of one another and welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. It will change how we feel about the lost, not as those who are a danger to those who are in here, but as those we purposefully, prayerfully invite into our homes, into our church, that they also might become part of God's redeemed community. It will change how we view this building. It's not a place for us to hide from the world. It's a place to invite people in, to know the love of Christ that we have tasted ourselves. Now we know that a church isn't a building, it's a people, and yet 
A building can change a people. Either for better or for worse. It can change us for better by opening up new opportunities for outreach and community building and relationship investment for the glory of God, but it can also change us for the worse by making us focus more on outward appearances, on people-pleasing rather than pleasing God. And that is why we need the word. Through all the challenges and the changes, through the ups and the downs, through the joys and the sorrows, it's the word that must be our north star, our guiding light, our standard that recalibrates our compass. And so let us commit ourselves to the word in our personal lives, in our homes, and in our church so that the testimony of our church will forever be, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Let's pray. Father, may the word sink deep into our hearts and bear much fruit in and through our lives that when the world looks at us and looks at our community, they would see something so radical, a love that can only come from a divine source, not from human effort or will, a love that you poured out through the sacrifice of your son. May we build our lives and our church upon the unchanging truths and foundation of your word As we move forward, we cast ourselves upon your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.